Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Ian Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for this week. We did a deep dive episode on Monday off the back of Apple's WWDC keynote in which we discussed the major announcements from uh, Apple's developer event. Uh, some things have continued to trickle out through the rest of the week and we will talk about one of those later on. But our agenda for today uh, for the news roundup is... Uh, kicking things off with Uber, whole bunch of Uber news over the last couple of weeks. We we debated covering some of it last week and decided to hold off on the basis that there'd probably be more this week. And, and sure enough, there was quite a bit of Uber news this week. So we're going to do a fair bit of time on various bits of Uber news. Uh, we'll then talk about the sale of Boston Dynamics by Alphabet to SoftBank, uh, along with another robotics business called Shaft or Shaft. And then the third segment, we will talk about some more Apple news um, specifically, we talk about the business chat uh, details that have uh, arisen through the rest of the week, and there's a session actually happening later today about that at WWDC as well. And then uh, news about uh, gigabit modems, so-called, uh, going into or not going into the next iPhones. So that will be the sort of agenda for today. But we'll kick off with that Uber news. Um, in case you haven't been following this closely, uh, some of the major things worth mentioning, uh, Uber fired Anthony Lewandowski, who's the executive at the center of the lawsuit between Waymo, uh, so Alphabet self-driving subsidiary, and uh, and Uber over LiDAR technology. So Lewandowski was the one who left Waymo, went to, well, started his own company called Otto for self-driving trucks that was then acquired by Uber. Um, this is really the subject of the lawsuit because Lewandowski was alleged by Waymo to have taken thousands of documents with him when he left and to have used those to develop LiDAR technology at Uber. Uh, he has, throughout the process, kind of asserted his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination and has sort of uh, resisted any and all attempts to get him to cooperate or to talk about exactly what he may not may or may not have done uh, with regard to those documents and so on. And uh, the judge directed Uber to do everything it could to exert influence on him to comply. And ultimately, when he didn't, Uber fired him. And so that happened last week. Um, and implications for him personally could be pretty significant and probably lose uh, hundreds of millions of stock options and so on. Uh, but that happened last week, and this week a couple of hires actually at Uber. So uh, Bozema St. John, who uh, was an Apple Music marketing executive uh, who uh, presented at WWDC last year, um, was one of the most interesting presenters during that event, has left and gone to Uber to become their chief brand officer. And then Francis Fry, who's a... Uh, Harvard Business School professor and consultant who has been working with Uber for a while now has come on board uh, to help with culture and strategy issues there. And then lastly, um, well actually not lastly, it was some other stuff too, but lastly in terms of big stuff we'll talk about today, Uber uh, fired 20 people over the last little while off the back of one of two internal investigations. This one was into specific uh, reported incidents of sexual harassment and other inappropriate behavior at Uber. Uh, it investigated about 215 cases, of which about a quarter were sexual harassment cases. Uh, 20 people have been fired. We don't know exactly what they were guilty of, but 20 have been fired. Uh, there's another 50-something cases still under investigation. Uh, a number of people are going th have had a final warning. There's going to be some training for people as well. And then also, not as part of that sort of cull, um, an executive for Uber in Asia Pacific uh, who had... Uh, secured the medical records of an Uber passenger who um, had been raped by a driver. Um, he secured her medical records and then shared them around fairly freely at Uber, which feels completely inappropriate. He was fired this week as well. 
after pressure from Recode. He was not fired as part of that investigation. So a whole bunch of Uber stuff over the last couple of weeks. Aaron, what was your take on all of this? You know, I think this is the first uh, news we've seen since the beginning of the year that Uber has been taking this stuff more seriously than what we've seen in the news. Like, I mean, this whole week, right? The, starting with the, kicking off with the Lewandowski firing um, and then moving into the the internal investigation that they had going um, and announcing the results of that. And then finally hiring St. John, I think, was a, an amazing move. I, she just has, she, she has a great, strong, insightful personality um, you know, is a really prominent advocate for diversity in the tech industry um, and uh, and also of women's issues. And I, I just thought hiring her for chief of brand was a really cool move. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much power she actually has in the company because mm -hmm. that's going to all, you know, devolve down to how the rest of the executive team treats her. Right. Um, and, and so that'll be the, that's the big remaining question mark in my mind for that hire is, you know, will they give her the power and authority to actually shape Uber's brand in meaningful ways uh, rather than just right. superficial ones? Yeah. Um, but she is the kind of person who's capable of doing that well if, uh, you know, if the rest of the executive team is supporting her. So yeah. I, 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 so I'm, you know, I, this is, this is all really promising. These are the, when we did the, when we did the question of the week on Uber and business ethics, I pointed out that, you know, you don't build a reputation for ethics by just always kind of going along with things. Like, you do it through hard choices. You, you get a reputation for being an ethical company or an ethical um, professional by having to do hard things, when, and that at times might mean firing friends, right, who have done things wrong. That might mean um, taking hits, you know, very deliberately and openly and voluntarily. And... And those are the sorts of things that have happened in this last week, um, mm -hmm. which are all a really good sign that Uber can turn a corner uh, on all of these issues. Yeah, and I guess the one counterpoint from my perspective is, is there's actually this weird duality at the moment where on the one hand, yes, there are these signs that they're hiring these women, uh, these two potentially quite powerful women who both, uh, neither of whom seems under any illusion about how badly things have gone wrong at Uber and how much needs to change there, which I think is a very good, they're strong personalities, clearly, you know, willing to try to uh, stamp their influence on the company and so on. You know, you've got that, you've got the firings that came off the back of the investigations. And yet you have Uber's head of HR out there, I think a week or so ago in, in an interview with USA Today, kind of saying, you know, in talking to people internally, sexual harassment really wasn't a big issue and various other things. And you've got Arianna Huffington, who's on the board and kind of is uh, partly presiding over the other investigation, sort of saying, you know, there are no systemic issues and all the rest of it. And, you know, so... While I agree with you that some of this is promising, it feels like there's still this sort of split personality thing going on where, on the one hand, Uber does seem to be taking some of this stuff seriously and making some moves forward. On the other, there are still some prominent people at Uber who seem to be in, either in denial or who want to downplay all of this stuff. And and so it'll be very interesting as the, the other investigation, the one led by Eric Holder, comes out, because that is the one more into kind of the cultural side of things. So the one that's concluded already was more about individual cases. This is more about the culture and what needs to change, and we'll have some specific recommendations off the back of that. Um, that one and the response to it, I think, is going to be really interesting, because it really feels like at least some people at Uber are still resisting all of this stuff, even as they seem to be making some of these moves in this direction. 
Oh, I think that's true. And I think, and you're absolutely right that culture is the level where the change needs to happen here. It's funny you bring that up because I just recently was having a, uh, a great conversation with um, uh, an attorney um, nearby who works for a prominent firm and he does a lot of uh, culture, he does a lot of internal investigations for companies. Um, so the thing that uh, that Covington and Berlin just did for um, did for Uber, there are a lot of law firms that do this for um, for companies that have had internal um, compliance issues. And so, um, <clears throat> in fact, my friend wrote an article called a, "An Internal Investigation Is a Terrible Thing to Waste," and mm-hmm. the whole article is just based on this premise that that. Uh, you know, when these internal investigations happen, the way they tend to go is is the individuals are identified and reprimanded. Um, the systematic the systemic you know problems are supposedly fixed because they put new policies in place. They do trainings surrounding the new policies that have been implemented. And then that's kind of it. and he he was sort of lamenting to me um, that, Part of the problem, this was at a business ethics conference, and that's why we were talking about it. Um, it part of the problem is that uh, firms then don't take it to the next level and look for cultural um, shifts uh, that are necessary to prevent the kind of behavior from being repeated. And, you know, he said, you know, I, he, he said it, it always makes him really frustrated when he does an internal investigation for a client. They take action. Everything, you know, happens according to plan. And then the same thing happens three years later. Right. Or something similar. And that's where I think the Elder Eric Holder investigation is actually a promising sign. Because um, although it's reasonable to see it with cynicism just because he's essentially, I mean, Eric Holder's an insider as far as Uber is concerned. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, but, but there are, but, but for a company to actually take the time to look at its culture um, is actually relatively uncommon when it comes to these internal investigations. And so hopefully it bears fruit. Um, like I said, these are just early signs that they can be turning a corner here. But I agree with you that, that it's still, it would be wise to still be, skeptical and and uh, pay close attention to the way they're behaving right yeah absolutely and and you know the the Lewandowski thing was interesting because it's always felt like both he and the company were kind of willing to throw each other under the bus and in this case you know like there was no even though there seems to be a personal connection fairly strong one between Travis Kalanick and and Anthony Lewandowski I think they're to some extent like-minded people um, you know, and and Kalanick has defended, um, you know, people, his personal friends inside Uber. I mean, Emil Michael is an obvious example of that. He's still right. there despite many missteps over the last few years and, and pretty questionable stuff. Um, but yeah, in this particular case, Uber clearly prioritized kind of keeping the company and its autonomous driving initiative alive over protecting him. And so that was, you know, it's a subtle thing, but, you know, an important one. It's, it's clearly not willing to just do whatever it takes to, to keep the key people on board anymore. And, and you know, the, the Asia Pac executive that was fired is another example of that. You know, he's another guy who's pretty close to Kalanick, somebody who's, you know, really critical to the business in Asia Pacific, and they were willing to let him go anyway, which again is a sign that they are willing to take some of that action that they haven't been willing to take in the past. So, so yeah, it will be a, a fascinating week next week as well, I think, as that um, second report is released, at least in part, and we'll see kind of what it says and what Uber's actually going to do about it all. But, um, it, you yeah, know, there's some signs that they are taking it all seriously. 
all this just is such great evidence of the of the truth that when it comes to a, a reputation for ethics, it takes years to build and seconds to destroy. Mm. And and not to say that Uber had ever. I mean, being totally honest, they never built up a reputation as an ethical company to begin with. Mm. But, you know, for every ethical misstep, it it takes 10 times the amount of effort to recover that reputation and rebuild trust so that people think of you as an ethical professional or in the case of a company, an ethical company. Right. And And unfortunately, Uber has multiple missteps just, you know, not only the last few years, but even just since since the end of January. Mm-hmm. And yep. and they so they have a lot of ground to make up, and mm-hmm. it's going to take more than surface level stuff or temporary measures. It's going to take, it'll be a couple of years of really consistent behavior before anybody sort of says, yeah, Uber is fundamentally a, a trustworthy company run by trustworthy people. Right, right. No, I agree with that hundred uh, percent. If anybody's interested, the deep dive that we did on Uber and, and the ethical side of things, which Aaron led on. Uh, was in episode 85, so you can go back and listen to that episode. It's the first part of that episode where we did that deep dive on um, ethics at Uber. Uh, well, let's move on to the second news topic we want to cover, which is the sale of Boston Dynamics and Shaft to uh, SoftBank by Alphabet. Um, and this is one of those interesting things where it's worth going through the history a little bit. Um, Google restructured, like, what is it now, a little over a year and a half ago, I guess, uh, into Alphabet the holding company, and then Google, and then the other bets. Um, and when they first did that, we, we had some discussion about it here on the podcast, and uh, and I think it may have been towards the end of that year when they made that, that change, and I, I think I made a prediction about, you know, at least one business would probably be spun off or sold or shut down um, as a result of that because it would sort of heighten the spotlight on, on these other bets that were sort of largely in disparate areas that had nothing to do with Google's core business, and in many cases were also losing money very heavily um, and then in March of last year, uh, reports started to surface that Alphabet was looking to offload Boston Dynamics, which is a robotics business. Um, one of a couple that were acquired under Andy Rubin, who was the, the founder of Android and, and stayed at Google for quite a number of years. And uh, in his last sort of year and a half or so at Google was uh, cobbling together a whole set of robotics companies and, and, and uh, initiatives. Uh, he left in 2014 and it kind of left that business is somewhat rudderless and, and it really kind of highlighted to what extent it really wasn't part of the core business in any way at Google. And so it was always an obvious thing to go as the company started kind of refocusing, especially under Ruth Porat, the new CFO, that came on around the same time as the Alphabet restructuring. So uh, today, uh, Alphabet and SoftBank have announced that Alphabet is selling Boston Dynamics and, and this other robotics business, Shaft, to SoftBank. And these, these robotics businesses, they build for want of a better word, sort of walking robots. So four, four-legged four ones in, in the case of Boston Dynamics and then bipedal ones in the case of Shaft. And both of those businesses are going to go to SoftBank, uh, both acquired at different times by Google. Um, no numbers have been given. Um, SoftBank has already made some uh, robotics acquisitions. It owns a business that makes the Pepper robot that's quite popular in Japan and starting to come to the US here as well. Uh, so logical fit for SoftBank, which ironically in some ways seems to be building something of a sort of conglomerate, investing in many different tech businesses. They acquired uh, Arm recently, Arm, which made, which designs uh, the chips and licenses those designs to, to many chip manufacturers for mobile devices and so on. Uh, they obviously own Sprint here in the U.S. They, they own some mobile gaming companies. 
and they have their traditional business in Japan, the internet and mobile business as well. So really diverse business, which is interesting given, you know, they're acquiring it from Alphabet, which is kind of dialing back on that sort of conglomerate approach. But Aaron, what was your take on all of this? Um, you know, it, like you, I'm not at all surprised that Google sold off Boston Dynamics. It was one of the, it was one of the other bets that seemed like a whim kind of purchase early on <laughs> for yeah, Google. Absolutely. It just sort of felt like, hey, let's this is cool. Let's see where this goes, sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. But nothing really yeah. necessarily strategic about it. Um, you know, SoftBank more and more is making me is reminding me of GE in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. in terms of just sort of the diversity of their approach, especially because they, you know, they, 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 like their business units include things like a finance company, a financing company, a publishing company, a gaming company. Like they operate in a lot of different, their business units operate in a lot of different spaces. And whereas Google is weird as a, as a conglomerate because such a, or I should say Alphabet is weird as a conglomerate because so much of their revenue comes from this one core activity. You know, a company like GE is very different in that they, you know, each of their business units are sort of seen and managed in a way that they're intended to be profitable all by themselves. And there's not, there's not, uh, you know, frequent um, subsidizing going on within GE. Um, and I, I, SoftBank seems like a much better fit for Boston Dynamics because of that. Because, um, you know, my impression of SoftBank is that they operate more like GE in the way that they manage their subsidiaries. And and I think this is a place where now Boston Dynamics will have to sort of establish itself as a business in its own right, rather than um, a moonshot the way it's been at Alphabet. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the, the fascinating thing for me about the robotics stuff, a lot of the other bets, stuff that's now other bets at, at Alphabet, started out as, as, to, as to use the word that you used, a sort of personal whim. But on the part of the two founders, so Larry and Sergey seem to be personally interested in a bunch of stuff and right. seem to go invest in it using Google's money, basically. And, and in the last couple of years, they've been largely doing that through their own money, things like uh, uh, flying cars and so on. They're, they're now doing that with their own money. But uh, the interesting thing about robotics was it was more of a personal project for Andy Rubin. And of course, that meant that once he left, it, its status was always sort of uncertain. But yeah, it was really an era sort of from about sort of seven to about two years ago where, where Google uh, made a series of acquisitions or organic uh, moves into areas that really had nothing to do with Google's core business and there was very little that tied them together. There was kind of an AI angle to some of this stuff and, and one of the interesting aspects of Boston Dynamics was that it was using AI uh, to make the robots very adaptable to different situations and so on. So there was you know, that AI connection back to the core business. But other than that, there was very little. And I think there was also the fact that the, the videos of these robots are often pretty creepy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the robots <laughs> kind of seem pretty scary. Um, and sort of combining these these frightening robots with, you know, people's worries about Google being too powerful and knowing everything about us and all the rest of it, I think it just wasn't a great look for them in some ways either. I, I don't think that was the major reason why they decided to divest that business. But it certainly didn't help matters, I think, that every now and then you had these videos popping up of, you know, Google companies' latest robots, absolutely terrifying, you know, it's a headline. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, good move. And, uh, you know, one of obviously a number of moves we've seen over the last couple of years of Google and Alphabet dialing back on things that, that were invested in during that time and they've kind of uh, pared back that investment somewhat. So, you know, Nest being somewhat refocused and having some cost-cutting, Google Fiber being largely kind of stopped in its tracks in terms of expansion uh, and some other changes that we've seen as well. So, you know, sensible changes, I think, you know, and, and somewhat inevitable once Alphabet kind of put the target on the back of the other bets with the restructuring. You know, I just one other thing to add to this is, 
is that you know there's there's a definitely a cultural attitude toward this idea of visionary founders, and and that you know great companies all sort of have visionary founders who see where things are going and and move that direction before anybody else did, and I think it goes all the way back to Thomas Edison. Mm. Um, what's interesting about that is if you look at the recipes where visionary founders have worked. Um, there, it feels like, and I'm just kind of like riffing on this idea right now, but it feels like there are also mechanisms by which focus is enforced on the visionary founder, right? Mm -hmm. So they can't just sort of yeah. wander off in whatever direction and they do whatever they like. Exactly. They have constraints and sometimes they're self-imposed or they're imposed by a management team around them. Um, you know, Steve Jobs obviously perpetuated the myth that, well, myth or not, of the visionary founder idea. Mm. sort of seeing where things are going. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't just him. He had a core team that he was working with. And it, I mean, if nothing else, you know, Steve Jobs wouldn't have had the success he did without Johnny Ive. And so right. the, the the funny thing about, about Alphabet's case is that, you know, these core executives and key founders of Google and, and then Alphabet, they just sort of had free reign to go sort of wander, right? And... Uh, mm -hmm. And, yeah. and there wasn't there wasn't strategy or focus about it. And the thing about these visionary founders is they, they you know, there's it just feels like when you think historically about the ones that stand out, there's a there's a focus concept or element there that mm. that didn't seem to be a play during this sort of heyday of other bets at uh, at Alphabet. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating idea actually. And two other quick thoughts on that. I think one one is there's a parallel with movie making there. You often see these directors that achieve amazing results with. Uh, significant constraints you know they, yeah. their first low budget movies are absolutely amazing and then they get given these enormous budgets to work with and they're never quite the same and I think Baz Luhrmann and um, Peter Jackson are two examples of that where they just get this sprawl sometimes that happens yeah. when you give these amazingly creative people that work very well within constraints but then go kind of wild when you take the constraints away um, the other thing that I think it makes me think of is Evan Spiegel at, at Snap who's you know, another one of these sort of visionary founder guys, um, you know, he's very got great instincts, I think, for product. But there was a story a few weeks back about how I think it was in the information, a sort of bit of insidery reporting there. He kind of talked about the fact that he trusts his gut so much that he kind of rejects the data. And so there's a risk with the visionary founder, too, that you become so convinced that you're right and, and that you have good instincts that you start to reject even very good evidence to the contrary. And, uh, you know, these visionary founders, that is a big weakness. They either get lost in their own, you know, the, the fact that they're convinced of their own sort of uh, infallibility or they become so laser focused on creating the best possible product that they neglect the business side of things. And so, you know, that kind of happened with Steve Jobs to some extent where, you know, clearly had great product instincts, but Apple was in real trouble a couple of different points in time, partly as a result of his sort of laser focus on creating the best possible product, sometimes at the expense of actually making money. Um, and with Evan Spiegel, it's a different version of that, where he's sort of so laser focused on his own ideas of what's right that he can't sort of take seriously the data that people bring him on why the app isn't performing and so on. So, yeah, interesting like, uh, broader it, discussion there. It's a great insight, and you saw that sort that that weakness of Steve Jobs, you know, mostly disappear in version 2.0 of him, mm, right? Yeah. Because what ended up happening is there there are a lot of anecdotes about how early on he would be completely uncompromising. Where mm. later on he would be uncompromising in the meeting, and then two days later he would be Change open his to mind. the idea. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. yeah. No. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about Apple specifically for the last few minutes here. Um, when 
in, in the last two, three years now, when Apple holds WWDC, there is just so much to announce that the keynote itself often only contains the highlights. And a lot of the details emerge later on through other sessions and so on. And this week, something that was completely unmentioned in the keynote, but that is um, sort of trickling out during the course of the week, and there'll be a formal session on it today, um, is business chat. And business chat is uh, Apple's version of uh, Facebook Messenger for business, if you like. Um, so this is a way for businesses to tie their customer service platforms into uh, the iMessage platform and then to uh, communicate with customers who want to engage in that way via iMessage. And so it works in a very similar way to uh, the Facebook Messenger platform for business um, in that you know, businesses kind of tie it into their, their customer service platform and Apple's created some APIs to do that. Um, messages come in, they get translated into whatever language the CSP speaks and then um, some member of staff can sort of be driving it behind the scenes but it has payments integration and various other things as well and there's a little sort of when you start engaging with an account on this platform it will say how, how uh, quickly they usually respond and that kind of thing which is something you may have seen in Facebook Messenger and so on as well with businesses. So, uh, you know, this is something that I've wanted to see from Apple for quite some time now. I wrote about it in a piece about a year and a half ago that I wrote for iMore called Evolving iMessage. And, you know, it's taken a while for Apple to get there, but between last year's announcements around extensions and apps and then this year's announcements around business chat and peer-to-peer payments and so on, it really feels like Apple really is turning iMessage finally into a platform rather than just an app. Um, yeah, it was, and so I think one of the really powerful things that is potentially baked into this, and I know the details all still need to emerge probably this afternoon, is the integration of Apple Pay into this platform um, for business users. I think it's going to be really, it, it's just a really cool idea to think that you could, for example, get a refund, um, you know, for a product that you bought or, or an interaction you had um, just into your Apple Pay account right there in iMessage. And, and I realize there are other ways for companies to accomplish that, and 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 you know, refunding a credit card purchase is is you know not exactly that hard. But but getting an Apple Pay refund right there in iMessage is a whole new layer of like customer satisfaction that uh, that I I think is more likely to be the the the, the you know the the next the next stage in in this idea. The, there's data now showing that customers are preferring. It used to be that customers preferred phone calls to text messages to you know to, to online messaging for customer support, and that's now shifting where more and more customers are preferring online messaging. They just don't want to talk to a person, and it's pretty cool now um, to to think of it being baked into iMessage with Apple Pay and all the other stuff that sort of comes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's going to be a really interesting tool, and and you know what's fascinating here is that unlike Facebook, which is very much using this as a way to ultimately drive advertising revenue and so on, from Apple's perspective, this is just about connecting consumers and businesses. Right. There's no ulterior motive here. This isn't a a new revenue stream for them, at least as far as we can tell for now. This is purely about saying, hey, this would add value for businesses and it would add value for consumers and we're going to connect them together. And so, in that sense, it doesn't matter as much whether it succeeds or fails as it does for say a Facebook. Um, but you know, it's it's a pure sort of value add, and and as I say, iMessage is becoming much more powerful 
as a way to interact not only with other people but to send them money and now to interact with businesses and to be able to pay for stuff there. And so it's going to be really interesting. And, and, and I'm curious to see whether the platform evolves over time to include more, I don't know, bots is the right word. Obviously, that's a big theme in this context right now. But whether it's bots or just other ways to interact other than simply typing out messages, so buttons and so on, um, you know, that'll be interesting too. Yeah, I think the two questions that are still remaining for me, one, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how much people are willing to... iMessage, I to me, sort of feels like, uh, gosh, like an inner sanctum of my life. I don't know mm. how else to describe it, you know what I mean? Like, I hesitate yeah, to... it's a very to, private place. Exactly. I hesitate to, you know, to... to I don't know. I, my instinct is to hesitate to invite companies into that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, I'm curious how much power the blue bubbles will have in this yeah. regard, right? Because right now you can do, there is text message support for companies, which sure. is functionally yeah. very similar. Um, but uh, to, to what Apple's gonna be doing, um, at least the foundational idea of it. But, uh, you know, I'm curious if sort of the, 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 the uh, instinctive appeal of seeing blue bubbles instead of green ones is gonna carry mm-hmm. over to interactions with companies. Yeah, yeah, and I've I've wanted it for a while, as I said, and I think it's not just the blue bubbles and that's sort of psychological, but the sort of richness of communication. So you know when somebody's read something, you know, um, you know, you see when somebody's typing a response, and so on, you know all the other yeah, stuff that you true. get, and obviously the payments and everything else is going to be part of it too, which obviously isn't part of standard text-based interactions with businesses. Um, the last little bit of Apple news we wanted to talk about was a report from Bloomberg, which is not a huge surprise to be honest that Apple. It's probably going to forego what are described as gigabit cellular modems in new iPhones released later this year. Um, I say, you know, so-called gigabit modems because, yes, in a lab or whatever, it's possible for these uh, modems to deliver gigabit speeds. In, in reality, um, as with every other wireless technology, what you actually see in the real world is likely to be a fraction of that speed. Um, but these are faster modems, you know, whereas LTE may sort of typically deliver sort of 10 to 20 megabits per second. You know, this might deliver 100 megabits per second in a typical environment. So these are faster modems. They will be rolling out from Qualcomm um, to major devices in the next little while. Uh, importantly, they obviously have to be rolled out. That same technology to support those modems has to be rolled out in carrier networks. And here in the U.S., we're certainly not there yet. T-Mobile has announced intentions to deploy that technology. The other carriers are working on it too, but it isn't there yet. Um, but, but Bloomberg's report is that Apple's going to forego those modems. Uh, perhaps in part because they're moving away from Qualcomm towards Intel, whose modem won't be ready yet uh, by the time Apple needs to build and ship these phones. Um, so it'll probably come next year. Um, partly also, though, I think, and, and Apple has a long history of this, of um, Apple tends to sort of wait out these new cellular technologies. They, they tend to wait for bugs to be ironed out, for the um, sort of power performance, battery life, mix to improve as well. I mean, with the first 3G phones were really terrible for battery life. The first LTE phones were terrible. And Apple kind of sat those out for a year or two and, and then only introduced the technology later when some of those issues had been ironed out. So this certainly wouldn't be unprecedented from Apple. Um, but the reality is most people's sort of real-world experience is not going to be all that different just because the carriers haven't deployed uh, these faster-speed network technologies just yet either. So. Uh, while it's an interesting report, and as I say, not a huge surprise, I'm not sure it's all that significant. But Aaron, I don't know if you had any additional thoughts on that. Yeah, same old, same old. We've been here before with iPhones, and we'll, and we'll be there again when the next you know uh, version of of modems are coming out. I do think it it adds it adds weight to the argument that Apple really should be doing its own modem chipsets, which 
it, you know, from the rumors, it sounds like they're moving in that direction. So that way they don't have to rely on one vendor or in this case, one up-to-date vendor and another slow one, in, you know, with right. Qualcomm versus Intel. Apple's chip design prowess, I, you know, it, other than other than patent licensing issues, <clears throat> I can't imagine, you know, Apple not having the resources it needs or even already having them um, uh, to essentially design their own modem chipsets. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. I think how far away that is, I don't know, but it seems super likely. Yeah. Yeah, great. I'll throw in one other just quick thing before we wrap up. Mm. On on Monday when we recorded, we speculated we were we were unsure about whether the iMac Pro counted as the redesign for the Mac Pro mm -hmm. um, that was promised to come later this year. And Apple apparently announced around the time we were recording after the keynote that uh, they are still updating the Mac Pro. So right. I'm sure most of our listeners knew that, but uh, that was a question that was hanging out there when we recorded on Monday. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good reference back to that. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's just to sort of serve the the needs of people who want an entirely sort of modular approach to computing rather than taking sort of one of Apple's sort of pre-configured specs that are going to be available with the iMac Pro and iMacs in general. Right. All right, well, that wraps up our News Roundup episode for the week. Uh, we will have some uh, links in the show notes to some of the stuff uh, on tech narratives, possibly elsewhere as well, as usual. Uh, just a quick note, I'm going to be traveling for the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure uh, what, if any, episodes we will publish over the next two weeks. I'll try to update you guys via Twitter. Uh, if you follow the Beyond Devices podcast account, that's at BD podcast, sorry, BDPcast is the uh, Twitter handle. Um, but uh, as I say, I'll be traveling, so it's a good chance that there will be fewer episodes and maybe none at all for uh, at least next week. Impossible that we'll manage to, to squeeze in an episode on Friday the week after, so two weeks from today. Um, but um, I hope you guys have a great weekend, and, uh, and if we don't do an episode in the next week or two, then have a great couple of weeks, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks.